back to, to morality today. I'll get more into virtues and stuff and try to give you some, some images for that. And at the end, I kind of hinted at it a few times last time. We'll go through kind of the, the controversial stuff, the things that people don't necessarily agree with us. And I'll just make some comments on that. Last time I talked about divinization, like we're not just about being a good person, too low, you know, too small. <laughs> divinization, and then I showed you George Washington, and I was like, I don't really have a good image for him. And then I walked away and I said, ah, there's a great image, and it's from the scriptures, and it's the transfiguration. So if you remember this, um, this is when Jesus picks out, Jesus has 12 apostles, but there's three within those 12 that he picks out even amongst the 12 as being unique and special and, and shows them unique, special uh, mysteries and messages and gives them special responsibility. And that's Peter, James, and John. Uh, and so he picks Peter, James, and John, and he leads them up the mountain. He's transfigured before them, made white before them, and then they go back down the mountain. So you can see them going up the mountain, down the mountain. Uh, when he's transfigured, they are utterly bewildered by what's going on. One gospel even says they fall asleep. And the idea there is kind of that they, it's their fatigue at trying to understand this thing, and they're just like, fine, you know, and, and they fall asleep. Um, they're led there to pray, it says, and so that, that's a beautiful thing. It's in, it's in prayer that we encounter this divinity of Jesus um, at, a, at a ties thing. But you'll notice, though, too, so they go up the mountain, they experience Jesus and his divinity through prayer, but then they have to go back to the mountain. And, and, and in this scene in the gospel, and it's really important, by the way, because it's in all four gospels. The only other thing like that is the passion and, and, and crucifixion and resurrection. The, the other gospels, though, some will tell this story, or three will tell this story, or two, or just one, that kind of stuff. This, the passion, Crucifixion, resurrection, all four talk about this. So it's super important. Not even the nativity of Jesus. Jesus' birth is told by all four. Luke, Matthew in his own way. Mark doesn't have anything to say. John goes at it in a totally different direction. But this, all four talk about it. But they're led to the prey, and they experience Jesus' divinity. And in the gospel, it says that Peter, that Peter said, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let me make three tents, three tabernacles. It's the same word, dwelling place. That's why we call this the tabernacle. It's a tent dwelling place for the Eucharist for Jesus. But let me make three tents, one for you, one for Elijah and Moses. This is Moses on the right, Elijah on the left. Um, and, and we can stay here, and Jesus like rebukes him for it. You know, no, we can't stay here. Um, what's happening here, it says there's this... Uh, really kind of cryptic line where Jesus says at one point there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the son of man coming in his kingdom sometimes you hear people say well the church, early church thought Jesus was coming back right away that, that before they die the son of man is going to come and, and then Jesus didn't come and so they, they had to kind of rethink that no this is, this is where Jesus makes that true like some will, before they taste death and then he leads them up the mountain and he shows them, boom, divinity right here before you. The church fathers, the church fathers, when they commentate on this, they all point out, it's not as if this divinity was never there. This divinity was there the entire time. 
So the real thing that was transfigured isn't just Jesus' clothes, but it's actually the eyes of the disciples. What happened is Jesus enabled them to see what was going on in him. And then this is really why I bring it up, this last part. You can see Jesus' divinity. You got Elijah, who's like the greatest of the Old Testament prophet, prophets, and he talks about uh, the Son of Man coming, and, and there's great prophecies of Elijah that Jesus fulfills. Moses, same thing. He, I mean, Moses is the one who experienced God's divinity to the greatest sense in the Old Testament. He went up the mountain and talked to God face to face. It says at one point he spoke to God as a friend. Remember, I explained last time how he had glory shining from his face, and, and they couldn't bear to look at him, so he had to cover it up. Um, and he did that all on the mountaintop. Uh, he got three rays coming from Jesus and hitting the apostles. And so the point of that is, what's going on in Jesus, we're meant to share divinization, becoming like God who is our friend, becoming like your friend. Um, that's what we're meant uh, to do. And like Jesus, even when that's going on, there'll be some visible aspects of that. Uh, people might see it in our character, for example. We might experience it at times. In prayer, we always have to come down the mountain in this life. It's, it's, it's in its fullness in the next life. We might experience it, and then we got to come down the mountain a bit. We might not experience it anymore. Um, and like in Jesus might be hidden us sometimes, but that's the point. We're meant to share in that. And what I like about it too, they're sharing in this, but they're confused and disoriented. If he's upside down, you know, he's together. <laughs> Peter, Peter's like reaching out to him, Lord, I'll make three tents. Anyway, so that's a better image for divinization and what's going on. Jesus and his transfiguration, the divinity that's there, we're meant to share in that. And so remember, as we go on to this, as we talk about you know, even the hard issues or the virtues or the effort involved, remember that's the moral vision. It's about happiness, about fulfillment, uh, that divinization, we don't earn that. Heaven, we don't earn it. It's not about becoming a good person. Character's great, good person's good, but our goal is a lot higher than that. That's the point, that's our Catholic moral vision. That's our foundation, that's what we gotta go back to. Um, but the virtues are the ways uh, that we actually can like live this out in daily life. The, the word virtue comes from Latin virtus, and it means power. It literally means power. I have the power, the ability, the capacity uh, to live this out in different aspects of life and to do good acts. And virtue, the thing, like, if you take like the totally virtuous person, they're not like, they're not like strained all the time or thinking or, or like looking interiorly all the time. No, virtue at its height, when you have all the virtues, virtue is joyful and it's easy. And uh, I, I, I just do what's good spontaneously. I just do it without thinking about it much when you have the virtues. Of course, we're not perfectly like that yet, but to the extent that we grow in virtue, that's what you experience at moment. You have to go back to the effort because of concupiscence. It's our tendency to sin, right? So that stays with us. Uh, inclination towards sin. So we have, always have to work on the virtues life. But that's what, when you have a virtue, you can do it well. And so here's a little example. Um, let, let's say uh, all I had this morning was four cups of coffee 
and, uh, and a bag of popcorn. And I walk into this room and we have refreshments and there's cake there. And I look at the cake and I think, oh, I'd love some cake. But I know it's, I'm, I need something nutritious and I should eat, but I want cake and I want something nutritious. Fine, I won't have it. I'll go over and eat some, you know, some, some chicken, some chicken Father Johnson made. Or another guy, one uh, walks in here, and he's in the same position, four cups of coffee and popcorn, and he sees the cake, and he's like, oh, fine, the cake. And he just walks over and eats and gobs a cake, right? And you have another guy, he's as hungry as I am for popcorn and four cups of coffee, and he sees the cake, and he's like, oh, no, I should have some chicken. Which guy is most virtual? The last one, right? Yeah. They, I mean, they decide, and he's like, no, chicken's the right thing. That's what I need. So he's temperate, right? What about the guy who, like, which is me? I, like, see it, and I'm like, ah, I can't have cake. Oh, fine, I won't have cake, you know? I'll have the chicken. Is he virtuous? <clears throat> no, not really. Not really. He, he hasn't made it. No, I made a good decision, but... But when you have the virtue, it enables ease, and you like, <laughs> you enjoy doing the right thing. And so that, so that guy is is is, uh, what's the word? Continent is the technical word. He, he's he's able to eventually restrain. He's strong-willed, you could say. But he doesn't have the virtue yet. I don't have the virtue yet. There's there's some main categories of virtue. Um, the main best one, and this is us as Christians, the theological virtues, they're theological. Theos is Greek for God. They're theological because they, they're given from God as gifts from the Holy Trinity, and they lead me to God, and they have God as their object. I can focus on God because of the theological virtues, and those are faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love, saith St. Paul. And so those are particular to, to Christians, right? Uh, the moral virtues, those are prudence, temperance, courage, and justice. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about those more in a second with a picture, but those, those are basically, uh, anyone can live those, right? It, it's, it's just about daily life. Temperance is ordering me well towards pleasures. Courage, ordering me well towards fear and experience of pain. Uh, justice, that I'm ordered well in my duties other people, my relationships with other people. Prudence is my ability to, to apply a universal principle to the here and now. I'll talk about those more in a second. I should know, and, and anyone can live those moral virtues, right? Anyone can, that, anyone who can use their head a little bit, whether they're Christian or not, those virtues are accessible to them. Some of the greatest theorizers of these virtues were just Greek philosophers before Jesus even came. Um, the important thing to know about virtues, and that I, I love this part, um, a virtue always comes in the middle between an excess and a lack, a defect. And that's called the golden mean. And so if you, if you have something like, um, let's go with faith first, because that's my favorite, huh? Faith. This is the virtue. What would, does anyone, what, what do you think that excess of faith would be? An excess of faith would be something like, not that you have too much faith, but, but it's something like faith. It might look like it, but it's not the same thing. It would be blind faith. 
You know, we're, we're asked to believe what God speaks and says, but we're not asked to turn your head off. Right? And so an excess of faith would be superstitious. It, it, it would be credulity. You know, it would be like, I just turn off my head and naively accept whatever gets said to me. I read the scripture, I take it totally, literally seven days. Yep, so a fundamentalism would be over there. Seven days. There's no way, other ways of interpreting that. Um, a lack of faith would be something like rationalism. I need everything that ever gets said to me. I need absolute certainty and proof. I don't take anyone's word for it. I only believe what I can touch and see and know myself. Um, and, and so I'm just, I'm just not even open to anything spiritual at all. Um, that would be a certain uh, rationalism. And that's not faith either. Both of these can look like what faith uh, should look like. And so we can mistake faith for blind obedience. You know, we can, we can mistake using our intellect well and our humanity well for um, what God, how God like, designed us. So they can imitate faith, but they're not faith. They're a lack of faith and excess of faith. Or another one, courage. An excess of courage would be fearlessness, or I think I have a better word. But evil Knievel, that's what I think. <laughs> you know, over here is evil Knievel. <laughs> you know, recklessness, that's the word I want. Recklessness, like I just do anything without any regard to my own safety ever, and I just throw my body out there, uh, etc. Uh, a lack of courage, of course, that's, that's easier. That's cowardice. Right, so courage isn't either one. The evil Knievel, under a Catholic understanding, is not courageous, he's reckless, and that's a vice. Temperance, you can do the same thing, right? Excess of temperance would be a Puritan. Can't enjoy anything, can't enjoy cake. I love cake, I'll eat cake, again, you know. But, but, or same with sex, we can be Puritan about sex. Sex under a Catholic understanding is good. And so the Puritan view, even towards sex now, we're realists, right? And, and so, you know, each one of these, you have excess and defect, but you have what we kind of tend to more, what's more common, you might, you might say. Um, and so for courage, you know, you might see cowardice a lot more than you see evil can evil, you know? And, and for temperance, and chastity, you, you might see indulgence a lot more than you see puritanism. We see both, and we don't want either one, right? So we're realists about that, but we also know we, we never want to go to that place where I'm just a soul, and the body is bad. You know, I have to train my body, I have to uh, work towards a healthy view, integrated view of sexuality, but um, it's not bad. It's created by God, Adam, and you've had it. Sex is not the result of original sin. So good faith, hope, and love. Faith is basically, I believe God who speaks because he's trustworthy. God can neither, uh, literally, by definition of who God is, he can neither deceive nor be deceived. Um, a good vision for uh, what faith is, it's not blind. Fides querens intellectum, which means faith seeking understanding. And so that's the Catholic vision that comes from St. Anselm. 12th century, he, it, it's faith, it's belief, I accept what God says, and then I seek to understand it. 
So you need both moments in it. Accepting what God says, and then based on accepting what God says, light is shown from that. I can, under, I can understand it at least dimly. Not every aspect of it, not rationalism, but grasp it in some sense, connected to my life, connected to the, to the scriptures. Hope. The basic object of, of, of hope is God's promises. God gives us truth, but then he promises us eternal life. He promises to, to be with you always, even until the end of the ages, Jesus says. Um, and he has the power to actually guide us. He means what he says. He has the power to do it. That's hope. Um, the transformation, the fulfillment we all desire, that needs hope. It, it, it's not a, a self, you know, to, to be transformed by God's grace or to be virtuous. It's not this, like, self-reliance. We take seriously the effort that we need to put forth, and it takes real effort, mental effort and physical effort and, and the aid of others. But the basic object that allows transformation to become virtuous, allows fulfillment of happiness, is, is focused on God's promises and eternal life. And from that, all kinds of uh, graces come. Love, I give myself to God who is goodness itself object of love is God's goodness. He's good to me. He has power to bring goodness even on evil things. Um, he's my completion. That's what my soul needs. I'm an empty cup. God needs to fill me up. Um, it's not do-gooding. Right? And, and for that, and it's not sentimentalism either. That's why love kind of says more sentimentalism to us sometimes. Like, in English, I, I can say I love God. I can also say I love cake. Very different things, you know. And, and it would be nice if we had a different word. Charity, in English, it's kind of associated with giving money to the poor or, or going to the African you know, foreign services. or, or um, The ultimate charitable person joins the peace corps when they do good things and they hold the open. Those might all be a part of charity, but that's not fundamentally what charity is about. And so I asked to get to this. A person lying in bed, a paraplegic, are they capable of charity? Yup. Better believe it. Charity in its essence is about God's goodness. It's an interior reality that makes it maybe hard to maybe understand itself, but it's true. It breaks out into my life, affects my life, shapes my actions, but it's an interior reality. So, so paraplegic or, or someone suffering terribly, but they're capable of charity. They're, they're capable of completion. Um, and so the, 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 the prime example, the prime example of, you know, the charitable person isn't the Peace Corps. Uh, it's, it's more something like the martyr. Who, who, I mean, a martyr doesn't, I mean, they do something courageous, but something is ultimately done for them. You can't kill yourself to call yourself a martyr, right? They just stick to God in the midst of being forced off of God to, to, to betray God to the utmost extreme. It, I mean, it's something like St. Therese of Lisieux is a great example of martyrdom. She lived, St. Therese of Lisieux lived in this little monastery, you know, a couple thousand square feet that never left those walls. And, and there, there's, I, you know, few people who could speak about the love of God more convincingly and with more conviction and with more like experience than Teresa Lisieux. She probably, Teresa Lisieux is the, is the missionary 
who's the patroness for missions and missionaries, and she probably never met someone who wasn't Catholic. Just because of where she grew up in France, and she only went to one trip to Rome, very Catholic places, and then she joined the monastery when she was like 16. And, and never meeting anyone in Catholic, she's the patroness of mission. How? Love. A love that's not do good, a love that's unsentimental, a love that's sacrificial and interior. Um, so going to the prudence, temperance, fortitude, this is a, a picture, it's in the Vatican Museums, and, it, it, and there's a great tradition to illustrate virtues of allegorizing them, creating like normally woman figures, and, and giving them symbols to show what the virtue is. And so in the middle here, this is the allegory of prudence. It's kind of hard to tell, but you see on, on the back side, it's white stuff coming out of her head, that's actually another face. And so the allegory of prudence always is two-faced. Why? Well, on the back, that's an old face. And so, so prudence looks back at past experiences. It's, it's looking backwards at past experiences and able to draw lessons from it and learn from experience. That's what prudence does. It, it takes experiences and learns from it. My experiences and other people's experiences, too. But at the same time, prudence also looks Forward, and that's the young face looking forward, looks forward to the future, looks forward how to apply the past to the future. Um, and prudence al also always has a mirror on the front. Um, it, it's kind of a, a symbol of knowledge, it's a symbol of clarity, it's a symbol of prudence enables a healthy self-reflection, not a navel-gazing, but a healthy self-reflection, uh, a knowledge of where my motives are, and an ability to, to write those and move forward into the future. On the left, uh, that's courage. And so you see courage is all uh, up in battle armor. The, the, the greatest example of courage, the, the epitome of courage is martyrdom. You know, to face fear, face death, and even unto death, to stay sticking to what's true and, and sticking to what's good. You'll notice that, that fortitude um, also has a little lie in there, so it's a sense of uh, wildness that can come and the strength that courage gives. And then you can see too, it has a little oak branch or oak tree and it's bending. And oak tree is one of like the strongest trees that's strong and stable, but courage uh, is actually bending it there. On the other side is uh, temperance. And temperance is holding some reins. And so temperance gives me the, the capacity to kind of rein in my passions that want to go to excess all the time. Like, it, I mean, think of a horse too though, right? So the excess defect. If you have a horse and you want to train it well, you can't like always like be beating it in the ground either. Always train it. Sometimes you give the horse its head too, you know. So it, it's a true control, not a puritan control, but a true control. And so, um, I mean, the three together, they, they kind of enable me to master myself, right? I'm I'm able to make good decisions. It's prudence and learn from experience and, and absorb lessons. Um, the chief obstacles. You know, in our daily dis decision making is my love of pleasure and my fear of pain. Psychology, sometimes modern psychology takes the pleasure pain principle, and it's true, and it's something that we experience, but it kind of exalts it and is like, that's how you should make a decision. Um, we can use that as a motor to be sure, but fortitude is what helps me overcome my, my fear of pain in a healthy way, and temperance is what helps me overcome my love of pleasure in a healthy way to live 
uh, the moral life. Um, justice, so those are all kind of oriented towards myself, my ability to make decisions, uh, my ability to govern myself. Justice is fundamentally about being ordered towards others. And so uh, this is a picture, of, it's kind of the life of the church going on. I mean, you can, what's happening up here by the throne, the, the Pope is, is receiving um, the first canon law book, basically, the Incredibles. And, and so those are the rules that kind of govern the, the society, whatever. Um, so it's a similar justice. Um, justice, its definition is to give to others what is due to them. You'll notice that's like exactly the opposite of what we normally say. You know, something like if I asked you, if I wanted to try to trick you, I might ask, and and you might define it as something like, you know, it's my rights. You, you might, it, it's receiving what's kind of old me. You're doing my rights are protected if, if things are just, right? Or it's fairness towards me or something, you know. But justice is actually exactly, exactly, exactly the opposite. It's focused not on my own rights, includes my own rights but it's actually focused on the rights of other people. And it enables me to respect their rights, respect what belongs to them, respect their possessions. And so the, you know, I, I'm in the middle school course, so the first thing I always hear if I discipline someone, it's not fair, you know, I'm being picked on. You know? um, justice is exactly, exactly the opposite. It, and justice, when I can live justice well and respect the rights of others, it enables me to carry out my duty, my role in a, in a given society, in the church, and in you know, American civil life, what, what have you. And then I just wanted to notice this. The definition, you could say, of religion is that justice is done to God. And so the, in, in the Catholic moral vision of the virtues, um, Religion is my, and a religious person is someone who is conscious and sensitive and fulfills the fact that God is actually owed something. God is actually owed something, and so I offer him um, what, what is owed him. Time, and you know, the classic form of time, treasure, talent, something like that, or, or the mass. The mass is something of justice being done to God. You know, he's being offered. The beautiful thing about Catholic, like, there's obviously a huge inequality. I can never like settle the debt. My balance sheet with God, it's always out of balance. And so someone like Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest theorizers of the virtues and stuff, you know, they're very aware of that, you know, um, that there is, the balance sheet is never like put totally right. But the religious person nonetheless does recognize God has owed something and tries to give it to him. And the beautiful thing about the Catholic vision of things is what I ultimately I give myself to God first and foremost uh, I also give at the mass who's being offered to God God is being offered to God that's and that's what God asked for that's what God asked for it is is uh, the sacrifice of the son that's what he like gave and it's being offered back to God and we're participating in that and so there's there is some sense through Jesus justice is done unto God uh, also through gratitude this is why gratitude is so important as well. Um, at the very, very least, if, if you can't make the balance sheet equal, uh, even in our relationships with each other, the very least thing you should say is thank you. And so, 
key, and I've been, I've been on this rant, is gratitude is truly right and just, or duty and our salvation. To be a good person, no. To give you thanks. And so something like missing mass, the worst thing I can say about that person is they're ungrateful for what God's done. St. Augustine, he has this kind of, he's very aware, love is the fulfillment of the moral life. And so he has a, a cool way of formulating uh, these moral virtues. Temperance is love giving itself entirely to that which is loved. I was just with my buddy this weekend uh, who adopted a couple kids and he had them uh, baptized, which is great. I got to be godfather to one of them and baptize them and stuff. But it, it was, they're fun. They're three and four years old. They're really smart for the age. They can talk like crazy. But at one point, you know, they're opening up. They got all these presents for baptism and stuff. And they're opening them and stuff. And the little boy went to the, the pile of gifts the four-year-old girl had and, and uh, tried to take some and she's like, no, no, you can't have it. <laughs> and then on the other side, she tried to take his and he just screamed, mine! <laughs> you know? <laughs> temperance, when we don't have temperance, there's this tendency for selfishness to take things for my own selfish pleasure and hold on to them and, and cave in on them. Um, love, love gives us ability through temperance um, to focus entirely on that which is love. The moral life is enjoyable. God is even when I receive gifts from God, temperance actually enables me to say, focus on God, not just take his graces and run away. You know, but to say, focus on God. I'm thankful for the gift that I focus on God. Fortitude, love, readily bearing all things for the sake of the love. Um, so, so fortitude through her love, through fortitude, helps me to cling to love even when it's hard. The faithfulness even when it's hard, and especially when Justice, love serving only the love. Again, justice, uh, love through justice. Justice enables me to be focused on the other and their rights. And, and so it, it give, love through justice gives me this ability to, to serve in, in, in duty, you know, in honor the, the one that I love. And then prudence, love distinguishing with wisdom between what hinders it and what helps it. You know, life is complex. We know that. And so that there, there can be something distasteful about you know, just love. You know, love is it all. You know, sometimes it's in the wrong context because you're like, but what do I do? I want to love, but I don't know how. They're such an idiot. You know, they're so, they, and they're so hard to love. You know, why if love's so great, why is it so hard? And, and so love through prudence gives me some clarity on how I love well. And that's a beautiful thing. And St. Augustine, he has another quote that I like. Uh, love and do what you will. And so in our decision-making, to be focused on, on love and how to love well, uh, we really are fulfilling the moral life in all its forms. Other boss virtues that I like, I just want to mention, first one, magnanimity. Magnanimity, magna, it's Greek, two Greek words slammed together. Magna means great, and anima is soul. And so magnanimity is great soulness, which I like kind of speaks for itself a little bit. Great solidness. Um, and that's a, that is a Christian virtue. That is a Christian Catholic virtue. To, to go after what is lofty. To go after what is hard to do. To, to have high, high ideals and go after them. That's Christian. That's, that's Christian to the extreme. The opposite of this is pusillanimity. Pusillanimity means small soulness. 
And so pusillanimity, talking about excess and defect, um, pusillanimity is actually just false humility. And if you have false humility, what do you need? You need magnanimity. You need the courage uh, to go after what's great and what's lofty. Humility, another boss virtue, it comes from the word just humus, or hummus, you know, it just means earth and Latin. Um, and so it means to have humility is to be grounded or to be real. And humility, what it gives, and Jesus describes humility to his apostles, he talks about service. And he talks about leadership, he talks about service, right? And so when you have humility, you have a certain energy for serving, for doing the small things and doing them well. And we focus on the small things. And so it's a beautiful virtue to <laughs> Um, this little rule, and this comes from uh, Fulton Sheen, whom I like. He says, uh, forming character uh, takes a few, certain humility, and this is a good rule to follow. To seek the best in others and the worst in yourself. Now, the worst in yourself, it's not about being like beating yourself all, up all the time and self-hate and self-condemnation. But the, the point is, our tendency is exactly the opposite. You know, It's in our pride have like an exaggerated view of myself in my ego an exaggerated concern for my for my own like rights and needs and and stuff and then I end up in my pride having a low opinion of others and a, an exaggerated view of their faults the humble person can see the goodness in others and seeks to find the goodness of others and, and to cling to that and the humble person sees their own faults for what they are their faults you know I got to work on them so it's not about self-hate, self-condemnation, not in the slightest. It's about the exact going against my tendency. Here's the allegory of magnanimity. You can see all the greatness going on. They're sitting in the throne, and they got, they got uh, you know, jewels and stuff, and a big crown. They're being offered a crown um, from the angels there. A couple things to notice. Oh, magnanimity, it's kind of power to execute noble thoughts. So you're after noble things and great things if you're magnanimous. But the thing to notice about this is generous. So this cherub here, he's got this like bucket of jewels and stuff. And the point is he's like about to empty it out. And so going after great things in a Christian sense, in a truly virtuous sense, and not in an egotistical sense, actually enables you to be generous. And to use what you have in your great powers and great skills um, uh, to, to, to be generous with them. Um, disinterested in earthly stuff. So the magnanimous person actually take all the material stuff that they have and the material power they have and their good reputation or whatever and they have all that stuff and they go after heavenly things and, and they seek the kingdom of God Jesus says seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness all these things will be given to you the magnanimous person can seek the kingdom of God and go after it and use their material stuff and their money and etc um, for that end an example St. Maximilian Kolbe when St. Maximilian Kolbe was young, he's a Polish saint, uh, born in the late 19th century. He actually died in Auschwitz. There's two Catholic saints who died in Auschwitz, and Maximilian Kolbe is one of them. Uh, very talented young man, very smart. He had like multiple doctorates and stuff. He was a Franciscan. When he was young, he apparently had um, a vision in which Mary asked, you know, here are two crowns. One is the crown of martyrdom. One is the crown of heroic virtue and heroic chastity. Which one do you want? What do you think he said? Both. Both. That's right. Exactly. He's magnanimous. You know, he, he had the courage to ask something great and huge from Mary. 
I don't want just I want both. Teresa of the Sioux, something she tells a story about herself when she's a kid, she was offered these toys, this basket of toys, and she's like, I'll take them all. <laughs> and she and she tells this story like I just told a story about a kid grabbing stuff and that's selfishness. You know, she, she tells this story and she's like, see, I, I wanted great things from God and I was courageous enough to ask for great things from God, you know. And so uh, that's kind of interesting. Um, going on to humility, this comes from Saint Paul. Says, have this in mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became, humbled himself, that self-emptying, uh, humbled himself, became obedient even unto death, death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under earth, Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when we go after humility and groundedness and energy for service, first and foremost, the best example of that is Jesus in the incarnation, God becoming man, the most humble thing that's ever happened. Uh, God even going to the cross, humble, humble, humble. God doesn't look like God on the cross, but he is. And then through that, as the gospel constantly promises, he was exalted. This is a little picture from the church where St. Francis is, is actually buried. This is called the allegory of poverty. Um, so humility being in, oh no, this is obedience. Sorry. Allegory of obedience. And you can see here on the bottom, you can see this monk. He's accepting, he's got his head bowed, so he's in this posture of humility. He accepts the yoke of obedience. Um, on the on the right here, this little center guy, I don't really understand why. I think it has to do with Roman mythology or Greek or maybe a Christian twist on it. Uh, he's kind of a symbol of pride and presumptuousness. And you can see he is being, he's like reject, being rejected and he's like totally like experiencing revulsion at what's happening, accepting obedience um, here. You can see on the side here, there are two people. One's, one's got a habit on and the other doesn't doesn't. He's just, a, he's just a common person, a layman. Um, and they're both being invited to the yoke of obedience too. And so obedience and humility, it's not just for the religious, it's not just for the priest, any state to accept obedience and accept humility, accept your role, carry out an energy for service. And then uh, you can kind of see in the background, see that two-faced figure? See that? That's prudence. Type of that, so prudence is showing up here. Um, prudence is involved in all our moral decision-making, right? So even in obedience, we're accepting the yoke of obedience. It's not blind obedience, and you, per, you need prudence uh, to apply that. And then um, on the top there, that's actually St. Francis. You can, you can see he's got like this harness on, so he's got a yoke similar to what's going on with that Franciscan down there. And it's through that that yoke, that obedience, that humility that Francis will brings, you can see those little hands. See them coming out of heaven there? It's so funny. <laughs> little hands coming out of heaven. They grab him, and he's pulling them up uh, through that. Here's another one. This one is the allegory of poverty. Um, you can see this is Lady Pop Poverty in the center here. She's like really gaunt and, and thin and, and shabbily dressed and stuff. And she's actually marrying Francis. 
this is on Francis Saad's vocation from the very first instant. Not that he was like abasing himself or like punishing himself in poverty, but he saw the beauty of it and he saw it as I fell in love with poverty. And so the, the minister of this marriage is Jesus. Jesus has given Francis away to Lady Poverty in marriage. And you can see this is where the humility comes in. You can see on the bottom there's these thorns and stuff. And this guy, he's got a stick. And so he's mocking poverty. <laughs> you could say mocking humility uh, too. It doesn't look good on the outside. <laughs> you know, and there's mockery going on. And this guy, he's got stones. He's throwing stones at him. Um, over here again, you can see they're kind of arguing over, over a garment. So you can see this uh, angel, this lady here, he's inviting him to poverty as well. And he's kind of letting go, he's pulling it away, and his vision kind of leads you up there. So he's accepting the call uh, to poverty. He's letting go of the earthly possessions and stuff. Over here on this side, they're being invited too, but these are kind of the rich folk, and you can see how these so see how they're kind of turning away. So those are the rich folk who go away sad, they're too stuck on their possessions to take on poverty. And then above there, you can see a earthly riches and treasures and a castle being brought up to Heavenly Father and receiving it. Kind of images for, for poverty, for the humility. A few other points, and just on morality in general, stepping away from the riches real quick, ends never justify the means. Uh, some, we have an almost inexhaustible ability to rationalize <laughs> and, and, and to convince ourselves, yeah, I did something bad, but it was for a good reason. No, no, you know, and so we have to kind of distrust our intellectual pride, distrust our intellectual pride and ability to rationalize. Compromises, they always collapse in on themselves in the long run. It never works, no matter what deal we're being offered. Compromising, yeah, it's a bad thing, but it's, there's going to be good effects from it. Never works. Um, there is something called an intrinsic evil in Catholic morality, and, and extremely important. It's a technical term. It means regardless the circumstances and regardless what my intentions are and my motives are, it's wrong to do X. Abortion falls in that category. Murder falls in that category. Stealing, real stealing, falls in that category. Um, idolatry falls in that category. Um, you know, anything like that. It doesn't matter what your reasons are or what the circumstances are. It's wrong. You shouldn't do it. I will say, you know, it's a good term to know and to know that's like a real thing. Intrinsic evils are a real thing. There's things we should not do no matter what circumstance or what motive. But um, it's not, if you're in a discussion with someone about homosexuality or about their marriage situation or about, you know, abortion, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't advise you saying intrinsically evil, you know, that it, many people don't quite understand, you know, what that means. But we should know it. We should uh, be able to apply it and present it in a good way. Uh, double effect, just out of fun. Um, this is different than ends justifying the means. It's going to be hard to apply, apply and see, but it is different. There are four criteria. What you're doing must be good. That's why it's not ends just, justifying the means. And I'll use some examples later. What you're doing has to be a good thing. But even though you know it's a good thing, you also know there's going to be a bad effect that comes from it. Um, 
And so you cannot be intending the bad effect. You know that something bad's gonna happen, but you know what you're doing is good and you just can't control the bad effect. Um, you have to exhaust all other means of achieving the end that you want, your, your goal. And so you, you can't just like go to this right away. You're morally obligated to find another way. And if there's not another way, then you would go to the double effect. And then it has to be proportional, right? Um, and that's kind of an ambiguous one, um, but it, it's something like, there's a pregnant woman who has cancer. Cancer treatment will end the pregnancy. Can you do that? This might surprise you. You actually can. And that's sad. It's a horrible situation. And so next time you're arguing about abortion and, and they throw this at you, just you, now you know the answer. It is, it is listed. Why? Cancer treatment is the good thing you're doing. Cancer treatment, uh, what, what chemotherapy, that's a good thing you're doing. Radiation, right? You, there's the there's a consequence that the that the child will die, but you're not if you're not intending that, then uh, uh, you know then then you're then you're okay. Um, and then the last that is proportional. It's got to be like a life threatening cancer. You have to exhaust all other means. Can you carry them to term? You should. You should. And I will say too, you know, too often with morality, we get focused on what I have to do. So you, you can do the cancer treatment, but it's a heroic, laudable thing to carry the child to term, even if you're going to die. That's a great thing. I don't, but the, the, you're just not forced to do it. In your generosity, in your heroic virtue, you can do it. And there's a great saint that we have, um, Saint John Amola, who did that. And her daughter's still alive. Her daughter was actually in Bismarck here at the University of Mary. So John Amola was diagnosed with cancer. She was pregnant. She decided, I'm gonna carry the child to term so that my child won't die. And she died. They started treatment as soon as they delivered the baby, but it was too late and she died. You could do that, and that's a great thing to do. But double effect would apply to cancer treatments to, to a pregnant woman. How about the atomic bomb in Japan? So if you know that right, we're about to invade Japan, the war is over, J the Japanese are not giving in. They're fighting behind every bush they can. They're kamikazing. They're, they're just running in without guns into uh, the, the allies' uh, machine guns. And so we're planning an invasion of Japan. And it, we are guessing a million US casualties. Truman decides to drop the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, millions of people, or hundreds of thousands, I should say, are killed because of that including women and children and civilians. Is that okay? Double effect? No. In our Catholic view, no. This is ends justifying the means in a Catholic view. In war, there is such a thing as just war, but in war, you are obligated to not kill women and children, to distinguish between who's a combatant and who's not a combatant. And the atomic bomb in this circumstance is not distinguishing that. They, they dropped it on population centers and they said there was a fact, there's a factory there. Okay. Not proportional, right? So the double effect has got to be proportional. You can bomb the factory in a just war like World War II. World War II is just war. You can bomb the factory. But, but you, 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 can't, you can't accept the proportionality of hundreds of thousands of civilians being killed. So the atomic bomb, no, that's ends justifying the means. So you can push back on that too. Um, a murderer enters my home, can I kill him? 
for an answer yes, but don't intend to kill him. Use the, use the least means possible. Uh, first thing you should do is shoot him in the arm or something. That's what you should try to do, not blow his head off on a bazooka. And just for him, you can do, and the reason you can, double effect. But there's rules within that. But I'm running out of time, I'm going to keep going on. You can ask if you want. Life issues, abortion, that, that's the preeminent concern, and on time. They're, they're, you just can't, you can't get around that. There's nothing else to say. I mean, if we can't uh, uh, defend the life of, of an innocent baby in the womb and appreciate um, the dignity of that baby, there's not much else we can do. Um, and so that's definitely a big thing. Euthanasia, life is a sacred gift. Suffering has meaning. We have to defend that. If we're going to be people of the crucifixion, we have to defend. Suffering always has meaning. God can use suffering. Suffering is still evil. We don't go around looking for suffering. But we do accept it with the knowledge that God can transform it. The crucifixion was an evil thing. God was killed. God used that suffering to work our redemption. And so we, there's the despair of euthanasia. We have to defend. There's still hope. Now, no, that doesn't mean you have to like keep everyone alive to the, do open heart surgery on 89-year-olds with Alzheimer's or something, you know? Um, in ordinary means, we have to feed them. We have to, we have to give them water. And to a certain extent, we have to help them breathe. You can't let people starve to death. You can't let people, um, you know, die of thirst. And if there's easy ways of helping them breathe, we have to do that. Um, but the other stuff you don't have to do. A note on palliative care, that's where you're giving morphine to like cancer patients, stuff like that, people who are terminally ill. Um, you can do that. You can mend that. That would be double effect. You know that you're shortening their life, but you're not intending that. You're trying to give them comfort in their extreme suffering. So even though you know it'll shorten their life, um, if you're not intending to kill them, you can give them you can give them morphine and other opioids and, and such to help their suffering. Stem cells, the short thing, adult stem cells, good. Embryonic stem cells. It involves the destruction of an embryo, and so it's morally wrong. Um, adult stem cells, this is a couple years outdated, but not that much outdated. The, the best medicine coming from stem, stem cells actually comes from adult stem cells. And so I love that fact because when we do what's morally good, I mean, there's a connection between morality and medicine. And so doing the morally good thing, even when it's hard, Medicine is going to back that up eventually. Medicine is going to back it up. Even something like NFP, which, which was not very popular when the church first talked about it and, and contraception, NFP has a lot more promising ways for, for dealing with, for dealing with uh, infertili infertility than something like IVF. Um, certainly, certainly, certainly children born from IVF are children of God and they have sacred dignity and there's nothing wrong with them. And so I don't want to say that in the least. And that's not why the church opposes it. We want to help couples who suffer infertility. It's a big, 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 big suffering. Um, but it, the method that they do, it involves several moral evils. One, harvesting the sperm happens through masturbation. Even for a female, hyperstimulation, the, the intrinsic evils, ends justifying means, can't do it. Not all embryos are used. The leftovers, they're destroyed and they're frozen. And so in the United States and other countries, there are hundreds of thousands frozen, hundreds of thousands of frozen embryos 
that we don't know what to do with. That is a moral evil. That is human life. <laughs> but we, we don't know what to do with it. And then a child, problem with IVF, a child has a right to be made in love and by love. It's actually like a right that we have, not a test to. Like I said, if you were born that way, nothing wrong with you. Not morally. Absolutely nothing. But in the vision of how we deal with infertility, this isn't, this isn't how we would want to do it. So besides the morality of it, it's very expensive and there's a lowest success rate. And that's what I mean about morality and medicine that go together. We do the morally right thing. It's going to be hard for a while. We'll have to take sacrifices. might be some failures. But it's gonna, God's going to come through. The God who created morality is the God who created your body. And so it's going to work out. And so the Catholic vision is to use science to develop morally illicit ways to treat infertility. And there are great institutions that are doing that, like St. Paul the Institute, St. Paul the Sixth Institute in Omaha. And so that's the, the moral vision. Contraception, it's not new. I talked about that last week. Ancient people knew about contraception and used it and had their methods. It's not new. Um, the question, in fact, when the church dealt with this in the 60s, she was not asking, is contraception wrong? She knew contraception was wrong. She was asking, is the pill a true contraceptive? Or is it a way of helping um, couples use the cycles and stuff? Um, the teaching of the church and Jews in Old Testament was contraception is morally illicit. All Protestant churches, everyone, every Christian who ever lived until 1930 agreed with this. That's 40 years before the pill, 35. But in the Lambeth Conference, the Anglican said, okay, if you're married, and if, you know, only sometimes, then you can do it. And, and since then, every Protestant church has fallen into that, with few exceptions. Um, and so this is the thing that the Crave talks about, about the, the church being a pillar and a bulwark. We're the ones sticking with that. And there, I know Protestants who have converted for that reason. They come to a, a prayerful discerning of their fertility and their, and their love life, and they realize... I can trust God with my fertility and doing more, something morally, morally good. God isn't going to lead me out in the rain. So the church's vision with contraception, it's that the unitive, which is love between a couple, and the procreative, the life, they always go together. In God's plan, they always go together. An openness to life. Not that every time you have sex, it has to have a baby. Otherwise, you did something wrong. Or if you know that you're infertile through the, through the cycles and stuff, that you can't have sex because you, you won't have a child. That is not it at all. And the church's vision um, involves like making healthy family planning decisions. But we should use what God created, the, the natural cycles of fertility and infertility. And there's like NFP now. I know it used to be called rhythm method and it doesn't work and blah, blah, blah. NFP is highly, highly, highly scientific. I don't understand it. Not that I'm that smart, but I don't understand it. It is highly scientific. And the, some of the, I've noticed in, 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 in marriage prep and stuff, the stigma has kind of gone away for that reason. And young women that go through it are like, wow, I had no idea about any of this about me. And the man is really like, whoa, wow. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit different, but, you know, so the stigma is going away because it's highly scientific. God can be trusted in making family and planning decisions. God's will, by definition, it's our fulfillment. And so we can trust it. If anything you take away from the life issue stuff that I love to point out as much as I can, and when I talk about it, morality and medicine, morality and, and science, they go together. 
So when we do our morality well, and we start there, the medicine's going to come along. It's going to get there. Medicine acts all confident and big, and we know what we're doing, and you guys believe in God, you fundamentalists, they, and they pound their chest. They're figuring it out too, man. They're figuring it out. And medical methods change all the way, and, and if you just listen to them, you would think IVF is just lock solid. The, the, the success rate is like 30%. It's hard. It's not a guarantee. You know. Um, and so some NFP methods can be more effective than the other. 